Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth podcast. Yep, your favourite, uh, presumably, environment and sustainability podcast. Uh, your hosts, as always, are myself, Lloyd. And I'm Emma. And this week, we're actually joined by a very special guest. We've got Hannah Rudd on the line because, of course, we're still operating on a socially distanced interview basis. And Hannah is a marine scientist, science communicator, and I, I'm going to call you a shark nerd. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. I, I embrace the shark nerdiness. <laughs> Very proud to be a shark nerd. That's the coolest title you can have. But that does give away, that gives away our topic for the week, doesn't it? We're going to be talking about sharks. But of course, before we get started, we need to do our regular famous feature of the podcast. What one good thing have you done this week? Lloyd, why don't you, why don't you kick us off before we put the pressure on Hannah? That's absolutely fair enough. Um, so we in our household have finally, finally got a smart meter. Um, I, I think you said, Emma, a while back that you got one in your house. Is that right? We do not. No. Oh, did, oh, um, well, sure. So I'm not sure who you've been talking to. Ahead of the game but... on that one then. Yeah, we finally got a <laughs> smart meter installed um, oh. from Bulb. And I've got nothing else to do during lockdown. So I'm just sat watching the electricity money go up and the gas counter. And it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, very nice. And that Bulb's, a, really Bulb's a green company, aren't they, actually? It is. So They're, it's a double um, win. Renewables. Yeah, um, it's it's quite interesting, actually, just, I mean, interesting is relative term, I suppose. But for me right now, it's it's quite fascinating to see when you turn on the washing machine and you see it go up by however many pence in the day. Um, so hopefully that'll inspire some more changes in our household. Yeah, you finding that that makes you a little bit stressed every time you put on the kettle, you think, oh, do I need a cup of tea? Or are you kind of just embracing it for the moment? I mean, I always need a cup of tea. I, I sacrificed washing You're my right. clothes. That first was a really bad example. Boiling the kettle. Yeah, no, I I don't think I could cut out tea or coffee either. Actually, that's true. So, what about you, Emma? What have you um, done recently? What's your um, one good thing? I was never a big fan of or a regular like shopper, kind of going to the high street and buying clothes and stuff. Anyway, but of course, with everything being closed for such a long time. You look for other other options. And I took some more advice from our fast fashion episode from like a year ago or whenever it was that we did that. Um, and I've started shopping on Depop again and finding all sorts of like little bits and bobs. And you, it's, it's funny, you kind of have to trawl through quite a lot of rubbish on Depop, but I've managed to find some really nice, like good quality clothes. So that is my good thing, not contributing so much to the fast fashion industry. Yeah, that counts. I've I've been using Depop a bit recently. I find it definitely helps when you know what you're looking for beforehand. Otherwise, there's so many filters and things to trawl through. Like you said, there's so much to go through that you kind of just get a bit lost. Mine's fashion related as well, um, to be honest with you. Um, I finally invested in one of those um, microfiber clothes washing bag things. Oh, um, yeah. No, that we've was got one of those. I haven't very eloquently described. Um, and the, the principle is you, 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 you shove your washing in it um, and then you... When, when it's in the washing machine, it collects all the microfibers and stops them from, from going down the oh. pipe to, to ultimately the ocean um, where they pollute. Um, sure. I think it's like hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions are thought to be shed every single time um, you, you do a load of washing. Um, what, what do you do with the, with the bag after the, the wash? Um, you hang it out on the line, um, collect all of them, um, put it in the bin and send it to landfill. So it's kind of... Solving one problem but creating another and moving the waste from one ecosystem to, to another. So I'm not yeah. entirely sold on on that um, as a solution. But yeah. something's better than nothing, I suppose. And yeah, it's, it's better than it going to the sea, I want to say. I don't know. 
Don't know. Yeah, not, I not suppose it, it depends on priorities of where you want the microplastics to end up ultimately, isn't it? And hoping that we'll get something in our waste management system to deal with it going to landfill instead. It's, it's still a really interesting invention, though, mm. I would say. Uh, yeah, I maintain better than nothing, yeah. I think. I, I, I suppose I would, if I had to choose, I would rather it going into a bag that's already made of plastic into landfill rather than free fall in the, in the oceans, perhaps. Well, speaking of the oceans, should we turn our attention to our, our sharky friends? Yeah, why not? Always. Oh, that was an enthusiastic. Yes, we love that. Brilliant. So you are a marine biologist and general shark fanatic. Lloyd, your research involves sharks. I just like them. I'm bringing no expertise to this to this episode. So listeners, I will learn along with you. Um, Hannah, maybe you can maybe you can kick us off. Like, why are sharks cool? Why should we care about sharks? See, you've opened a can of worms here, Emma, because there is a lot of cool things about sharks. We like that. We like opening a can of worms here. We're ready for the shark worms. (laughs) One of the facts that I love the most about them is that they actually appeared in the fossil record before trees did. So they've been around longer than trees. Um, So that's around 450 million years that sharks have been on our planet. Incredibly successful group group of animals. Oh, They also have this incredible ability to detect electrical signals and impulses within their environment. Um, So this is a process known as electroreception, and they do this using a special sensory organ called the ampullae of Lorenzini. Now, these are jelly-filled pores that are usually highly concentrated around their noses, um, and they can use this ability to aid their hunting and their navigation. I just think it's the most incredible sense for an animal to have. And if you're ever using photography equipment, for example, around a shark, you may notice that it's particularly attracted to to the the camera because of the electrical signals that it's giving off. That's really cool. <laughs> Another characteristic which makes sharks so distinctive and successful is their cartilaginous skeleton. Um, so all elasmobranchs have this. So elasmobranchs are sharks raising skates, um, and it really enables them to be fast-moving, nimble um, and agile hunters. Um, This is versus what other fish have, so teleos fish, um, and their skeleton's made up of bone, so it's much heavier um, and less agile. Cartilaginous is a wonderful word. We we love a good shark expert. So um, you clearly love sharks, understandably so. So what... um, What's your experience with sharks been to date? Like, I, I know you've done a, a master's, for example. What was your what was your research in to get you to this point? So, I have recently just finished a master's in marine environmental management um, from the University of York. Um, well, I say recently; it was last September, <laughs> but I had a fantastic time doing it. And um, part of it was two research dissertations. So I was very, very lucky um, to be able to go to the Maldives, to South Ari Atoll with the Maldives Wild Shark Research Programme um, to really get a feel for the ecotourism um, sector out there, sure. how valuable it is as a tool to shaping our attitudes towards sharks um, and engaging people with the marine environment and also how valuable it is to the local economy and it, it's a fantastic example of how sharks are worth far more alive than dead um, but yeah from that I basically did a 
compare and contrast study of the management of the ecotourism sector there with various other sites around the world. I am currently writing up the paper, so I'm not going to say too much, um, (laughs) but hopefully that study will be out in the not too distant future. So then I was really lucky to go back to South Africa again um, to study the influence of voluntourism. um, So volunteer programs, volunteer um, holidays um, on people's perceptions of not only on sharks, but also the wider marine environment. Um, And it was just the biggest privilege to be able to do that with the focal species being great white sharks um, in such a special place um, and act- to actively see people's perceptions changing on a daily basis and not only the volunteers but also the tourists um, on the ecotourism boat that um, I was lucky enough to go on is just something that will stay with me forever um, because you know so often we're bombarded with pictures um, that are very Jaws-esque in the media um, and on social media um, and through Hollywood because fear sells. Um, but spending any time with these animals, you very, very quickly appreciate that that is not what they're doing 95% of the time. Um, and that it is just a, a moment in time that a very talented photographer has captured. <laughs> I think it's really important that we advocate more accurate imagery of sharks in the media um yeah do you have a favorite shark cutting edge journalism here I think. <laughs> um it changes all the time to be honest um so there are oh, you know, they're an incredibly diverse group of group of animals they and there's more than 500 they, different yeah. species of them um and they're far more than that traditional um you know, mackerel shark morphology, so uh, great white shark kind of um, shape. But that being said, I do have a soft spot for great white sharks and other charismatic megafauna like a whale shark. Um, but I also, um, I'm kind of going through a bit of a blue shark phase, um, but that's probably because I'm booked to, to see them <laughs> in the Celtic deep in September. Um, I also love zebra sharks, so they're, they're a, they're a carpet shark um they're adorable um there's a video on the internet i think it's from alex kidd uh the photographer and videographer and it's very very sweet it's just snoozing on the reef it's adorable i'm gonna google that instantly as soon as we stop recording (laughs) to be honest with you i love them all i love their quirkiness i love how diverse they are as a group of animals um but it shifts depending on my mood (laughs) All of them, all um, of the sharks. <laughs> yeah. So that I think would lately kind of lead us into like what I mean. What is their role in an ecosystem? Why are they being threatened? Like why are we seeing them slipping down the ratings? Like why do we need to help sharks at the moment? What's what's going on with them? So a quote that I think not only sums this up perfectly but also rather powerfully is from the brilliant Dr. Sylvia Earle, and she said that you should be scared if you're in the ocean and you don't see sharks. Um, and the reason for this is that sharks are indicative of ocean health. Mm-hmm. Um, so as apex predators, as any apex predator in any environment, sharks play an important role um, within their ecosystem by maintaining the species below them in their food chain. Um, so, for example, they help remove the weak and the sick. Um, and they also keep a uh, balance between competitive species, which ensures species diversity. Um, an analogy that is frequently used to demonstrate this is that sharks are the doctors of the ocean. We depend on our ocean for far more than I think we regularly give it sufficient credit for. 
Um, you know, from the air that we breathe to the food that we eat to jobs that we depend on for financial security to mental health and wellness benefits. There is so much that it does for us um, and we just haven't given it sufficient respect, um, to be honest. And if we want to continue receiving those benefits, it's time that we looked after each component within that marine ecosystem. And one of those is a healthy shark population. Um, Research is showing that the removal of apex predators from an ecosystem can lead to a phenomenon known as a trophic cascade, where an entire ecosystem can shift and it can change. And there are examples of this all around the world. Um, And unfortunately, if things don't change, we're only going to see more of them. Um, I think anyway, um, as ecosystems change, as populations change, um, yeah, it's quite frightening, to be honest. Tragically, the first results of the Global Finprint study came out a couple of weeks ago. I think it was something like 20% of the reefs they surveyed, they surveyed around 400 reefs, had um, no sharks, they had no shark sightings. Most mind-blowing to me was that over 800 hours of BRAV footage, so baited remote underwater video systems, um, across six nations, and I think they spotted three individuals And researchers think that sharks have now become functionally extinct on uh, a a large proportion of the world's reefs. So that means that their population is no longer almost viable in a way that there's not enough individuals within that population to to repopulate it successfully or have an influence on on that ecosystem. Um, So, you know, these changes are already starting to happen um, and it's, it's very worrying. Yeah. Should should clarify that uh, bruvs are these uh, baited underwater cameras, aren't they? Uh, so like little camera traps with, um, with with some fish in them, and you just leave it and see what gets attracted to it. Um, I, I think I read the same report actually, and it was, it was um, quite clear when it was saying that the abundance of sharks on these reefs are quite obviously linked to the density of human population nearby. Things like whether there are large markets nearby as well. Um, and how, how good the governance was of the country as well. So, I mean, you were talking about um, uh, ecotourism as a solution for encouraging people to protect the ecosystems, uh, if not for, you know, a, a sense of ecological charity, but through financial gain. So is that going to be integral then if we keep seeing more developments on coastal areas um, or is there something else that needs to go hand in hand um, with things like ecotourism? I mean, it's a rapidly um, evolving area of research um, and something that from an academic perspective, um, I'm particularly interested in um, the role of ecotourism in changing people's perceptions towards sharks, challenging stereotypes um, and translating into conservation action. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I say, it's, it's a rapidly evolving area of research. Um, but it it is increasingly and time and time again, showing that sharks are worth far more alive than they are dead. You can only fish a shark once, um, and sell its fins, meat, uh, whatever else it might be once. Whereas if that shark's alive, um, and you're taking tourists out on a boat or a dive trip, Um, to observe it in its natural environment, you can do that multiple times. Um, So 
they're, they're worth a considerable amount to, to economies and in countries like South Africa and the Bahamas, um, you know, that they they fu- they form a fundamental part of those those tourism economies now um, because they're they're bucket list items and they're things people really want to do um, and you know these these tourism operators have a, a a very valuable opportunity to educate their 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 audience um, and improve awareness um, for the conservation of these species um, because they have a, a, you know for for however long that trip is they have that that captured audience, you know, to tell them stats and figures and how people can help. And I mean, even being out there on the ocean itself is a fantastic way um, of of challenging stereotypes and changing people's perceptions because, you know, you see a shark swim past and it's not interested in us. And that, that, you know, that, that changes your mindset straight away. Yeah. I I remember when I, um, uh, before I went on a trip to do some research with whale sharks, I had a really hard time convincing my mum that they weren't going to eat me. It was <laughs> it's quite a long conversation. I was like, no, no, they they don't eat they don't eat anything bigger than you know. But it, it was yeah, she she wasn't having any of it. I mean, yeah, of course, as with any animal, when you're interacting with it or entering its environment, it's incredibly important to have a healthy dose of respect for that animal. Um, let's not forget that sharks are apex predators and they can inflict some serious damage should they choose to. Um, but let's also not forget that we're not their desired prey. So on the subject of shark attacks, unfortunately, in most incidences, it's a case of mistaken identity for us as prey. Um, so for example, a seal, um, and it's the injuries from that test bite that subsequently leads to a fatality. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, healthy respect is really good. Um, and you're right about a comparatively low risk of shark attacks, though. I, I, it reminds me of a, I can't remember the comedian, but a, who said that um, with those statistics, the sharks have got a uh, advantage of not being on land. But but you're right that, um, yeah, you accept this risk when you go in. And actually now with uh, technology, I suppose, we see, I don't know, shark attacks in Australia, for example, or Reunion Island. We got we have technology such as you're talking about um, magnetic sensing in sharks. They're trialing kelp-looking things with magnets in them. They're trialing um, drone spotting um, so they can get a head start on on the sharks without the need to employ troublesome tactics. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, sharks should definitely be more terrified of us than we are of them. A statistic that's commonly thrown around is that 100 million are thought to be killed every single year. Um, It's an insane amount, um, likely to be much higher. Um, I can't even imagine what that looks like. Um, And it's primarily for the fin trade, um, so for shark fin soup, um, and which is a barbaric practice in itself, shark finning. Um, The sharks have their fins removed, sliced off, and in many cases they're, they're tossed back into the ocean alive where they suffocate to death. Um, They need to have water flowing over their gills in order to extract the oxygen from the water to breathe. Um, And they need to be able to swim to do that. So without fins, unfortunately, they suffocate and die. Um, But two of the main threats to to shark populations globally are their intentional capture, so for their meat and fins, um, but also unintentional capture. So they're they're highly likely to become bycatch. Um, Many species are pelagic, highly migratory, um, so that they're they're incredibly likely to to be captured within um, gill nets, long lines, for example, um, unintentionally, but they do die as a result. 
which is why I think it's so important that you check um, the method that your your seafood was captured with. Um, but on the subject of shark fishing, I also think it's important to remember that it's not as clear cut as um, you fish sharks, therefore you're a bad person. Um, there are, you know, there are areas of our planet, um, low income coastal communities um, within um, developing countries in particular, where shark fishing um, can not only be sustainable of some species, but it is necessary for their their primary source of protein and, and income. Um I mean, generally speaking here, that the, the main issue is the rate of exploitation is unsustainable. So you've mentioned that you think or you've noticed that people's impact it, actually f- interacting with or in a way or being exposed to sharks in their wild habitat is one of the one of the best ways to combat the quite often like negative image that the public holds of sharks, the, the scary jaws effect, as you said. But in a in a world where we're kind of trying to reduce carbon footprints and reduce the number of flights taking, um, which might then see less voluntourism, perhaps. What do you think would be kind of the second best way, as it were, to help really reshape and remould the public's image of sharks? Would it be getting in the water at your local beach with your local shark trust? Because I know we've got, what, 21 like resident species of shark around the UK? Or would it be kind of through uh, like documentaries actually show the intelligence and things of sharks and using traditional media to kind of connect with people and say, look, they're not all this really bad vision of things that Hollywood's created? Yeah, so um, I think that's a really good point. And increasingly, there are more opportunities to see our local sharks um, here in the UK. There's um, the guys at the the Celtic Deep um, in Pembrokeshire, where you can see blue sharks snorkel with those guys. Um, up in Scotland, there's Basking Shark Scotland. There's a couple of guys down in um, Cornwall, and I'm sure there is many more um, ecotourism operations um, that I haven't mentioned. Um, and then there's also obviously um, chances to get up close and personal with them at aquariums. Um, we're also really lucky to have um, a great array of organisations here uh, working really hard for sharks like the Shark Trust. They have some great resources online. Increasingly, scientists are getting engaged with scientific communication um, and communicating their science. There's a fantastic array of um, scientists on Twitter, on social media. Um, Melissa Marquez is absolutely brilliant um, with her Finns United initiative. But yeah, there's so many, um, there's so many shark scientists online that are really communicating, um, communicating their science um, and making that emotional connection um, through ecotourism operations, for example, or through um, witnessing these animals in an aquarium um, is really important as well. I think that's um, a really good point, especially for the UK, where, I mean, I don't know about you, but I I don't think a lot of people realise how many shark species and how diverse shark our set of shark species are in the UK waters when you've got um, basking shark, like second largest fish in the world. You've got um, shortfin mako sometimes pop up and they're the fastest shark in the world. You've got some really cool species that um, uh, come across. So we've talked about fishing being one of the reasons they're in decline and proximity to humans is often quite a big cause of population collapse. Um, They're also obviously at risk from shark finning. But I wanted to ask... Let's talk about climate change and sharks, because with a lot of species in the oceans, we're seeing things like 
the range shifting as the oceans are warming and different patterns are moving and their prey are moving. Is that something we're also seeing with a lot of shark species? So I have to admit that this is not my particular area of expertise and it is an ever-evolving area of research. Um, It's obviously important for us to understand the influence that climate change and its impacts are having and potentially could have on all aspects of life on our planet. Um, But when it comes to animals like sharks, for example, that have long and complicated life histories, um, it's particularly difficult to do that because you need long data sets so you need time to get to get those data sets um and you know there's still so many questions that we have left to ask um, and answer about these animals so for example we've never seen um whale sharks give birth we've never seen great white sharks mate there are still so many questions um that will contribute that that the answering of those questions will contribute to better management conservation um, and and informing research Mm -hmm. um but there are some things that we can hypothesize or that research is um, increasingly revealing. Um, and one of those things is range shifts. So whether this impacts the shark directly or whether it impacts its prey, um, it will have an influence. So a warming ocean um, and changing currents may lead to, to certain um, species changing their usual distribution um, and sharks follow their prey right so that will then ultimately have an impact on those two um more specifically um i was reading the other day that researchers think that cat shark eggs may be temperature sensitive so that could have uh ramifications for repopulating those species then i was reading a blog post the other day about thermoregulation within sharks most sharks are ectothermic their environment dictates their their body temperature, but some are endothermic um, and they have the ability to warm certain regions of their body. Um, This is usually to to aid hunting. So for example, they're faster, uh, stealthier. Um, And we don't know what implications that may have on on those species. Um, It's also important to remember more holistic um, impacts like habitat loss. um, And also that, you know, sharks have been around for, as I was saying earlier on, 450 million years and they're slow growing animals and it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to adapt um, to the changes that are taking place fast enough. Um, so again, quite a worrying scenario for these guys. And let's be honest, the the wider ocean as a whole. <laughs> I suppose part of the problem then, if, if, if there are, for example, shifts in its range um, and where it's hunting for food, is that uh, it's, it's hard enough and slow enough getting governments to make legislation for the species that they already know are there. And then if you've got these new ones coming in um, within the last year or two, then all of a sudden you've got a new fight on your hands to get these species protected status. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, um, especially when you're dealing with a group of animals where so many species are highly migratory, like with sharks. Um, You know, sharks don't know that they're safe in one country, but they're not in another. Um, The ocean is just the ocean to them. You know, for example, white sharks in South Africa, they migrate from South Africa where they're protected species. Um, Further to other countries in Southern Africa, like Mozambique, where, to my knowledge, they're not. Um, So, you know, it's it's important that that management um, reflects the the distribution of these animals um unfortunately so many countries are only concerned with 
their own economic interests and what and what's happening within their economic exclusion zones and any trade agreements that they have, um, as well as obviously complying with um, treaties like CITES and other legislation um, set yeah. out by the UN, for example. But as far as the high seas goes, um, I want to use the the term lawless, to be honest, um, because it's a highly uh, unregulated, unmonitored um, area of our planet. Um, and it's scary um, to, th- to think that. Um, you know, if you look at the example of um, the Chinese vessels lining up outside the Galapagos exclusion zone right now, ready to capture anything that comes in their path. Um, and it's not a secluded case either. Things like this take place all over the world. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch that level of, you know, exploitation um, at such an unsustainable rate. Um, and yes, marine management is highly complicated, um, but marine protected areas work um, and we need the, to give the ocean the chance it deserves to recover um, with enforced protection. I mean, what would be fantastic is if there was the establishment of biological corridors um, connecting key areas for species um, so, for example, breeding grounds and feeding grounds um, across international borders, um, across the high seas, um, connecting marine protected areas, um, creating a network. So, yeah, that would be a fantastic way way of doing that. Um, on the topic of sharks, I'm sure it's the same for many species. There are still so many questions that we have left to answer. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do. Um, but protection is needed now. Um, Absolutely. So, well, while we're on the subject of policy, um, we should probably wrap up soon, uh, even though I would love to talk sharks for hours. I'm going to keep picking your brains. Um, But we tend to finish the episode each week with um, a kind of what can you do to make a difference? And there are two things I found. Please add to them uh, if you've got any other other tips. But one was, again, talking of policy, is that there's a, a petition that can currently be signed, which we'll put a link to in the in the description, um, encouraging Parliament to ban the import of shark fins in the UK, because currently you're allowed to bring in 20 kilograms of shark fin as an individual into the UK, which is quite a lot of sharks to have gone into making 20 kilograms of shark fin. So that's one way that you can potentially have a bit of an impact by going and signing that. And the other one was um, looking at the Shark Trust, they have something called the Great Egg Case Hunt. I don't know if you've have you mm-hmm. come across. Yeah. yeah, we're nodding. So we love a bit of citizen science here anyway, don't we, Lloyd? We're always encouraging people to get involved. But this one sounds really cool and I'll definitely be keeping an eye out next time I'm at the coast. Um, but they are basically encouraging you to look for and share your findings of egg cases uh, anywhere along the UK coastline because by sharing with them what you find and where, they can get a much better picture of what populations are around at certain points around the UK and how well they're doing. So that's something you can go and have a look at. Yeah, so those things are both great. A couple of other things that I can suggest to you. Um, the first one being talk to people, talk to your friends, talk to your family raise awareness, challenge those stereotypes, have a conversation. Um, Education is honestly one of the most powerful tools. Um, So use it, share pro shark conservation content online, follow shark scientists, follow shark advocates, follow shark organizations, Uh, learn as much as you can, that's really important. Um, In your personal life, in terms of purchase choices, 
Uh, avoid squalene if you can. Squalene is shark liver oil, um, frequently used in cosmetics and toiletries. Um, another one is chondroitin, um, that's shark cartilage. Not too sure if that's used too widely over here in the UK, um, but it's usually used in pet treats and things. So keep an eye out for that one. Oh, I didn't um, know about that. And if that wasn't enough, there is also loads you can do to get involved with wider marine conservation, reduce your single-use plastic usage, check out seafood sustainability guides, um, go on a beach clean. There is so much you can do. Um, and it'll not only benefit sharks, but it'll also benefit their home. Fantastic. Well, that's a really long list of to-dos there, folks. A really comprehensive list. That's quite a lot yeah, we can that's do. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. But obviously, before we let you go... What are you up to at the moment? Talk to us about the things that you've got coming up or that you'd like to share. Yeah, so um, I'm currently working on a book I'm writing. Um, it's pretty secretive. There's still no title um, that's confirmed, um, but it's about the British coastline um, and it should be out in the not too distant future um, in the world of publishing. Um, another thing I'm working on is a research and conservation project in South Africa called the Marine Protection Project. Um, so you can follow us online on social media. And then related to that, we're running a fundraiser led by Valerie Lupino for the Seabird and Penguin Rehabilitation Centre in Mossel Bay. Um, like many organisations, they've been hit hard by the pandemic um, and they rescue, rehabilitate and release seabirds in the Mossel Bay area, um, primarily in um, African penguins, which are an endangered species, unfortunately projected to be extinct in the wild by 2026. Um, and they've recently taken on um, quite a few penguins um, and resources are already stretched. And we need to feed those little guys. Um, so if you'd like to check out the fundraiser, you can find us at gofundme.com forward slash last March for African penguins. Fantastic. And where can people find you on social media? So I recently um, set up a new Instagram account just for my science communication and to share my photos and like ocean stuff. Um, and that's over at Hannah Rudd underscore wildlife. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I had a really good time. It was a really nice chat. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, and yeah, I've just been a massive shark nerd, but I hope you've all learned something. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I've learned a lot. And I mean, I, I loved sharks before, but without um, quite the armoury of facts that you two both have. So. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so that's that's it for this episode. Um, don't forget, everyone, you can find us on social media as well. Lloyd's looking panicked in case I'm going to ask him what our handles are. Oh, I didn't know them when we were recording many episodes in a row, let alone when we're near the beginning of a season. <laughs> We're on Instagram and Facebook at For What It's Earth Podcast uh, and we're on Twitter at What Earth Pod. And you can drop us an email if you've got any ideas for episodes, as Hannah did, uh, or if you've got any feedback at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to make sure that you're subscribed and like leave us a five-star review, all casual. Like, you know, it goes a really long way and we're not desperate, but we'd, we'd love them. <laughs> but please do. Brilliant. Um, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Mm -hmm.